everybody. My name is Roger. This is Andrea. And we are Two Vets Upstate. This is episode two. Doesn't have a name yet, but we have uh, an outstanding guest on tap today. We have a lot of exciting news, uh, both personally and within the state and veterans community. And let's kick it off by asking Andrea what she is eating and or drinking today. So today I am drinking some white wine that is left over from a graduation party. However, I did just go home to Kinderhook where I celebrated um, my graduation from grad school by what? eating an entire pint of Stewart's ice cream. Um, it's like their blueberry pie flavor. Mm. And um, I also, my mom also picked asparagus out of her garden and ran up to me with this asparagus. So I also had an asparagus grown in Kinderhook, New York. Wow. You are, you are just local. You are straight local today. I'm impressed. Straight local. And asparagus. That sounds pretty healthy too. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, eating junk food right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But in, in my I defense, I'm... In my defense, I'm also on baby duty, so uh, that's mostly to comfort uh, myself for that. Um, so what are you eating and or drinking today? Um, I am actually drinking a uh, Captain Lawrence Orbital Tilt IPA, an India Pale Ale. Um, it is very IPA-y, um, I guess you could say. Uh, lots of hops. Uh, not usually my thing, but this is actually really delicious, and uh, for those of you that don't know, Captain Lawrence Brewing Company is in Elmsford, New York. So that's my little connection to home today as I'm still sitting here stationed in our nation's capital. So you want to talk about some things that have happened in New York to kick things off? What do you think? Yes. So in the news this week, um, there was a lot. So as many of you may know, May is Military Appreciation Month and uh this past weekend, May 19th, was um, Armed Forces Day, and uh, the, a number of events were going on um, during the state, or around New York State. I would uh, definitely suggest following the New York State Veterans Twitter account, as well as the social media accounts for the various veteran service organizations. Um, American Legion New York, in particular, has a pretty active um, Twitter handle. Um, and so one of the events that was put on was put on by the Hudson Valley Veterans Alliance. Uh, they did an event over at West Point. So Hudson Valley Veterans Alliance is uh, largely based out of Poughkeepsie, but um, does work in Dutchess County, uh, Putnam County, and part of, of Columbia County. So, um, there was also an event in my town that I missed because I was graduating, but there were a lot of events going on in the state. And uh, what what were some of the things going on in the the nation's capital affecting veterans? Oh, goodness. So uh, the big news for us, I think, is that the VA Mission Act passed the House of Representatives. The vote was 347 to, I think, 70. So uh, as far as uh, the box score goes, that is a pretty overwhelming uh, victory and a nice... Uh, welcoming gift, a door prize, if you will, for the newly nominated Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie. So Robert Wilkie is um, 
career public servant um, as a political appointee. So he served in a number of Republican administrations, primarily in the Department of Defense. Um, he was previously the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Um, also an issue near and dear to my heart, but um, not the subject of this podcast. Um, but he's been filling the acting role um, over at Veterans Affairs for um, quite some time now. I've uh, had the opportunity to meet him very briefly. Um, actually, the, the same day we did the last, the last podcast. Um, so... Of the of the possibilities, looking forward to um, what he's going to do. Um, believe that the VA really needs someone who understands bureaucracy and understands how uh, these organizations um, live and breathe. And I do think the VA has that in um, Secretary nominee Wilkie. Like Andrea, uh, turns out he is actually an intel officer in the Navy Reserve. Also, yes. Yes, yes, so yes. You fools are taking over the world. I don't know how I feel about that, but yeah. uh, um, he also, uh, speaking of things that were surprising, uh, uh, looked looked a little mildly surprised when the president announced uh, in the White House at an event that he was nominating uh, uh, Secretary Wilkie for the for the post. Um, but uh, he seems to have grown into the announcement now. Shifting from uh, Washington, D.C. back to New York, uh, Barbara Underwood today, appointed uh, by the uh, state legislature as Attorney General. Uh, last episode, we talked about Eric Schneiderman's retirement. Uh, now Barbara Underwood will be the first woman to serve in the post as New York's Attorney General. So that's pretty good news, I think, amid uh, pretty um, regretful and forgettable uh, tenure from her uh, previous, uh, from her predecessor. And uh, um, what else is going around the state, uh, going on in the state? So um, we hear a lot about uh, um, veterans running for Congress, not too much about them running for state office. Uh, my district in particular, uh, um, an Army veteran, civil affairs reservist, Republican Jake Ashby just won a special election for the um, 107th Assembly District. Um, that seat is safe for a solid six months because they have to do a regular election um, in November. So <laughs> already already up for grabs again. But then um, on the uh, state Senate side and on the Democratic side, um, Aaron Glad just, just announced that he's going to run for the 43rd District of the New York State Senate. Um because the incumbent, Kathy Marchone, is retiring. Um, Aaron Glad is also an Army veteran. Um, Got to have some Navy representation in my district. Come on. Um, but uh, you know, good, good to see that, uh, good to see veterans also running for office at the state and local level. Yeah, that's right. And um, at the uh, sort of state federal level, uh, we've got about a little less than five weeks, or maybe actually exactly five weeks today, uh, to the uh, state uh, primaries, so June twenty sixth, folks. Yep, yep. Go make vote. sure uh, make sure all your uh, your ballots and your polling places are squared away. You can visit the uh, New York State uh, uh, Department of Elections uh, Board of Elections site uh, for that uh, stuff. So and mil military absentee ballots have already been sent because I have mine. Great. Um, 
for I'm looking forward. I'll actually be voting in person. But um, and by the way, if you receive an absentee ballot, that doesn't mean you can't vote in person. Um, they do the way the way it works is they know they know at least if you voted, not how you voted, but if you voted. Right. Right. Um, so as long as you haven't sent it sent it in, you can still vote in person. Um, but if you don't have your ballot and you're expecting it, go on the website, give them a call. Um, I've had a great experience calling the Columbia County Board of Elections when I've had issues getting my ballot. And then in addition, um, if you are on active duty or your reserve issue is going to be on active duty orders at the time, you can also pr go online and print out your ballot online and then mail it in snail mail. A couple of other things happening around the district. So we're not just talking veterans issues here, but uh, not a lot of people think about taking out the trash and what happens on the backside of that. Uh, too often. And I mean that literally. I mean trash, solid waste, right? Um, there was a little bit of a, an uproar uh, this week because Governor Cuomo came out against a proposed trash incinerator uh, in the town of Romulus in central New York. Uh, this is uh, especially important to me as a central New Yorker because this would have been the third trash incinerator or a major trash site Within about a 40 to 50 square mile radius in central New York, there's one um, in, uh, in central New York in Onondaga County right now, um, and uh, pretty, pretty excessive uh, amount of uh, trash disposal incineration going on in what most people who live here think of as a beautiful environmental area that should be protected. And the last thing I want to talk about is, um, and this is something that we'll come back to uh, again and again, is a uh, recent uh, Brookings Institution report that uh, basically called upstate New York out uh, uh, for being uh, one of the most pronounced areas in the country for a racial income divide. Um, th I think three of the ups our upstate New York counties, uh, Monroe County and Onondaga County, um, were on the list of the top 10 counties in the U.S. Uh, for the starkest racial income divide. So uh, the average uh, uh, household income for white families in uh, Onondaga County is about $64,000, uh, and that's almost double the average uh, black family's uh, household income. So we have to seriously, I think, take a look at what we are doing as communities to uh, bring everybody up. Because one of the Brookings Institution's findings was that uh, in a lot of these sort of uh, post-industrial uh, communities, so that means you know manufacturing or some sort of large uh, industry has left the area, and now new businesses come in and we're building sort of a, a revival, a renaissance in some of these uh, cities and counties, uh, that economic recovery could be short-lived if only one area of the population is, is receiving the benefits, and that would be bad for everybody, not just one particular race. So it behooves us to create an economy and to create policies that lift everybody up. Can't agree more with that. Um, and we also see, and we all see, like my, my district as it is, um, where I live is 90% white. Um, yep. And then the parts of the population that are not white Often, definitely fall into those same those same disparities that you just discussed. So right. we have a lot of work to right. do. We do, and I know we think about 
issues like race and issues like economic fairness and equity. Um, and we think about big cities and other states, but uh, we can't be complacent um, because we're members of a community. Speaking of upstate New York, though, um, a little bit later, so I'm going to tease this uh, for after our guest, but um, uh, the great, we're, going to, we're going to roll out uh, something we might call the great ice cream debate here on this show. Uh, it has a little something to do with a place called Burn Dairy uh, and a place called Stewart. Stewart's Ice Cream. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that later, but uh, Andrea, do you want to introduce our guest finally? Yes. So our guest is Ashley Nicholas. Woo. So Ashley Nicholas is a native of Baldwinsville, New York, and she is pursuing a GD at Georgetown University Law Center. And as a law student, she had she interned with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alexandria, Virginia, and the Department of Justice National Security Division Counterterrorism Section. At Georgetown, she serves as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy and is the president of the Military Law Society and is a global law scholar. Prior to law school, Ashley served as an Army Intelligence Officer with Forge's Striker Brigade based out of Washington State. And she then spent two years as a Teach for America bachelor's degree in sociology from Military Academy at West Point, beat Army, go Navy, in 2009. And she also holds a master's in urban education policy from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. She is a 2016 Pat Tillman Foundation Scholar, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy's Best Defense blog. Damn. So please welcome Damn. Ashley Nicholas. Hey, guys. Hey, Ashley. What are you eating or drinking today? <laughs> so I am actually in Denver for a couple days, so I had to go with some Denver local fare. Uh, so I had an Upslope Lager, which is a uh, local beer here to Denver. So it's it's no uh, it's no Genesee cream, but it'll do for right now. Right. So what is your favorite local food or beverage product from upstate New York? I, you know, I gave this a lot of thought. It's a hard question because I, you know I'm not living there right now. So I get bottles of Dino barbecue sauce mm. mailed down to me on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. Um, but if I'm home, it's it's Hyde's hot dogs in Liverpool. So I think that's it depends on where you're at. Now we uh, we we share a uh, common uh, eatery, uh, if you will. Uh, how many times have you been to the Beeville Diner? Be honest with me. I, there's the, the number is very high. I mean that is a is yes. a staple. So we I grew up ten minutes from the diner, and I mean it's open three hundred and what sixty three days a year. I think and, so. Yeah, uh, it's. Yeah, it's a staple of a, a Baldwinsville childhood. I want you to know that as a small town kid from Red Creek, uh, coming to Baldwinsville was like going to the big city. So the big uh, city, uh, yeah. After every championship sporting event or school musical, uh, we would go there, and uh, lots of good memories uh, from Baldwinsville. Um, so uh, thanks, but not to great pump place your, to grow up. Not not to pump your head up too much. Uh, we should let user or users, my goodness, we should let listeners uh, know. You could be a user or junkie of this podcast. That would be fine. Uh, but we should let listeners know right up front a very important issue, which is that you're a Boston Red Sox fan. 
I am. We can be open about this. We. This we, is not okay. We, <laughs> I mean, I'm outnumbered by no Navy folks and Yankees fans on this podcast. So it's a little unfair, but I'm going to okay. give you. I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to explain yourself and to, well, and to you, come over. You know, to, Roger, I think it, <laughs> it comes down to loyalty, right? So I was I was born in Warwick, Rhode Island. And, you know, from birth, was a, a Sox fan. We moved to Syracuse when I was three and a half. And so, you know, I remained loyal to my my, root, my baseball roots. And I suffered through the 90s. And if you're a Red Sox fan that suffers through the 90s, you can't waver. So what you mean to tell me is that Rhode Island doesn't have a baseball team. So you just glommed down to Massachusetts. <laughs> Sorry, excuse for a... Uh, well, you don't even own your own city. You got, like, multiple teams down there. I don't even know what's going on. I mean... It's the Yankees and everybody else. I hate to I hate to offend Mets fans and whatever else. I, I'm married on, to one, so yeah, I understand. Yeah, I don't understand so, Mets fans. Yeah, you you know our plight, but they're not threatening. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing now. How's uh, how's law school going? It's great. I love it. So I'm uh, living in D.C. I'm going to Georgetown Law Center. Just finished up my second year, so one one to go. Um, doing a lot of work kind of in the hybrid between criminal law and national security law and, and living in that space and then doing just kind of a lot of veterans work on the side. Um, so it, it's, it's a full-time, it's a full-time job, but being a student full-time is great. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity if you can swing it. Um, and I think a lot of veterans can and should, and it's, uh, I can't overstate what a great chance it is if you can do it. So, Ashley, you've had um, a couple of different experiences um, obtaining higher education since leaving the military. Could you tell us a little bit more um, about your um, opportunities in higher education and how you funded both of them? Yeah, so my first opportunity was through Loyola Marymount when I did my master's degree in urban education, and uh, that was really through... Uh, my status as an AmeriCorps member and the, the benefits I received. So I think, you know, we talk about the GI Bill a lot and we characterize service as military service a lot and we talk about those benefits. Um, but the reality is that service is a lot broader and there's a lot of opportunities out there for education benefits otherwise. And so as an AmeriCorps member and a Teach for America Corps member, I was able to uh, have a, a tremendous amount of help getting my master's degree. Um, and then coming to Georgetown, I benefited from not only the help of the Pat Tillman Foundation, um, but also the GI Bill. Uh, I'm an academy graduate, and I left active duty uh, right at the five-year mark, so I didn't have any of my own uh, GI Bill benefits. But my husband is continuing to serve on active duty, and we took advantage of the ability to transfer benefits to your dependents. And so uh, since he's still on active duty and he's um, going to serve the additional obligation which depends on how many years you've got in active service at the time that you transfer. Um, but we made that transfer right at the beginning of law school, and we've been able to take advantage of those benefits. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, how you uh, made decisions about um, both uh, your non-military service, your other forms of public service post-military, and um, where you are now? Yeah, so when I, I got home from Afghanistan after deployment and um, had about a year left on my active duty obligation, and I kind of knew at that point I was ready to, to get out. Um, my husband and I had kind of been alternating deployments, and, you know, he's a Navy guy, and so it's kind of Army-Navy is a tough, tough balance. And um, 
so I decided I was going to get out at that point, but I, I knew that I wasn't done serving. I just wasn't really sure what that service was going to look like long-term. Um, but it was really important to me that my first job post army was still in public service. Um, education and education, I've always just been interested in as an engaged citizen and someone who, who finds these to be issues of great consequence. And so, um, teach for America is a, a two year, basically a fellowship. And so, um, it was a perfect kind of bridge selfishly for me and a pragmatic um, way to transition from active duty and have some time to consider what I wanted to do before making you know, these big expensive decisions that are a lot of the higher education goals that you can pursue. Um, so I went and did Teach for America and spent two really the best years of my life teaching high school math uh, to kids on the east side of San Jose, getting to coach softball, getting to mentor these kids through really consequential period in their life. Um, and it was during that period that I was able to kind of process the decision to go to law school and realize that that was how I wanted to characterize my service for the rest of my career was through a, a career in, in law, um, recognizing that the law is a, is a tool that we can use in, in every facet and against every problem we face. And so that's where I wanted to head. And so, you know, when I finished teaching, it was straight to DC uh, to start law school. So actually, you have a very unique perspective on the dialogue that's going on right now on gun violence in the United States as a uh, service member who served in combat, as a uh, former teacher, and as a student of the law. Um, and you've had two op-eds, one in the Washington Post and one in the New York Times come out in the, in the last year. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's it's difficult um, because as veterans, I think we often get uh, kind of put into a box altogether and, and painted, you know, for whatever the purpose is, painted to have all had the same thoughts and think with the same conscience and, and all vote the same way and all think the same way and all fall on the same side of every issue. And so I think when you have a unique perspective or you're a veteran who maybe would break the mold a little bit. I almost feel like there's a kind of an obligation on you to, to speak out and to help educate the rest of the country to the fact that the military reflects the whole population, not, not one segment of the population. And so, uh, and both of those occasions with the op-eds, it's kind of why I decided to write um, because I realized my opinion would probably go against what a lot of people would assume um, the military would think. Uh, the the gun control debate is difficult in that it's it's a debate that I think we often talk past each other in. Um, and people who have experience with, with guns or who, who are veterans or police or just people that are big Second Amendment proponents like to use language that speaks right past the other side. And as soon as you use the wrong technical term or you label something wrong, you, you lose all your credibility and we're not going to have this conversation anymore. Everybody goes to their extreme corners and we just refuse to engage uh, with each other. And I, what I was hoping to do with the Times piece was just kind of point out some of the, the logical issues that we've got in this and then why do we have teachers and what is the school for and who's who does the obligation fall upon to keep kids safe and what are we trying to do in schools? And I think as someone who has had to run, you know, 30 plus 14, 15 year olds through the shelter in place drills, you have a perspective on what your your perspective is in that moment and what you're concerned with in that moment, and it's not returning fire. It's keeping the kids quiet or trying to keep them calm or trying to manage their emotions. They're 14 or younger. You know, I can't imagine 
a classroom full of kindergartners um, and that's, you know, your job is to get them all in a corner, try to keep them safe. Your job is to keep them safe, not engage with the enemy, for lack of a better term. Um, so I think it was important to me that I tried to illustrate that cleanly because it's so easy to throw these solutions at the wall and act like they're uh, practical without just completely ignoring uh, what it really looks like in practice. Yeah, the gun control debate is such a charged issue, and it's you know it's personal for me um, as somebody who's supportive of uh, vets for gun reform uh, because I grew up in a household that taught about uh, you know the the responsibility to safely handle and understand firearms, right? So, um, but yet I find myself in the same debates uh, as you do with folks who want teachers to you know be armed in school. They want, they fear um, that their guns are going to be taken away wholesale. And um, these are, these are things that just seem so outside of the pale. You know, I wonder how, how do you go about actually talking to folks um, on this issue and, and how do you find common ground? Well, I think that's the that's the trick, right? The common, the last thing you said, common ground. I think often people run to their corners with issues like this, and um, they jump to the extreme solutions. And so, you know, somebody that's nervous about losing their their rights, fear that your answer is we're just going to take away all all weapons wholesale, and so they go to that corner, and other people jump to to the, the far opposite. And we refuse to talk about the incremental changes or the, the laws that already exist that we're not enforcing or the things that we can do to make just things a little bit safer tomorrow than they are today. And, you know, the, the example I like to point to is, is seatbelts. You know, there were there used to be a lot more uh, fatalities and car accidents. Yeah, that's right. And then we had the bright idea to put seatbelts and it was a federal law and we put seatbelts in cars. And do people still die in car accidents? Yes, of course they do, but far fewer. Um, so I think we need to start talking about what can we do to enforce the laws that exist and what can we do to make these incidents far less frequent and far less deadly when they do occur. And we don't need to constantly just talk past each other and run to corners on this stuff. What can we agree on? What small thing can we agree on? Let's agree on that. And then we can build on that success and let's, let's have some minor victories and build from there, um, which is not an acceptable answer to a lot of people. I think a lot of people right now are looking for the big solutions to try to fix this tomorrow. I just often, I think with policy and with these debates, you have to take the victories where you can find them and they're going to probably be slow and incremental. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you wrote your Times op-ed in response to, I think, the Parkland shooting. Is that right? Yeah, it was, it was Parkland. Unfortunately, it's hard to remember which shooting it was in response to at this point, but it was Parkland. Yeah. And, uh, and then, but uh, when we, we had actually asked Ashley to come on the pod and discuss this before the Santa Fe high school shooting. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Isn't that sad? So. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people um, talking about arming teachers, like we mentioned, um, as someone who has had teaching experience in the classroom, um, you know, you've rightfully pointed out that it isn't as easy as that, right? Because what, what additional things as a teacher and as somebody who has experience with firearms are you now worried about as a teacher in the classroom who is potentially armed with a firearm in that sort of environment? I mean, let's just start from the really pragmatic. You're worried about um, 
losing your cell phone in a classroom. And now we're going to, we're going to put guns in there and, and be concerned. Somebody, a curious kid is going to grab it or it's going to get into the wrong hands. You know, I, I think adding, adding that element of risk to a classroom is just absolutely ridiculous. And we have enough time. I mean, we all, we all were in the military and we know that we've heard stories of, you know, junior officers and junior soldiers losing control of their weapons. And these are people that we train to carry weapons in war zones. Um, I don't, I'm not confident that a teacher who has, already has more on their plate than we should demand of them, um, is now also got to be responsible for maintaining positive control of a firearm in a classroom of 30 or more more kids. Um, I think too, there's a very practical question of regulation. You know, what guns are we going to be allowing in classrooms? Are those personal weapons or are school districts going to be deciding uh, what weapons go into a classroom? Who's going to pay for that? Um, and, and how are we going to certify are you just going to tell me that you're uh, competent with a weapon or, or we now need to also have teachers worried about going to the range uh, every six months in the army? Uh, that, again, are you going to be partnering with police? Like, how are you going to regulate that? We, right. we can't even agree on evaluation criteria for teachers in teaching. Uh, now we're going to have to decide how we're going to regulate the use of a firearm in a classroom, um, which does not seem like the best use of our, our time and effort in, in developing good and effective teachers. You know, educational inequity is a problem in this country that is going to become a national security problem before long. And it's a problem in this country that uh, is incredibly pervasive and it tears every, every other issue we've got, health, poverty, the list goes on and on and on. Um, those are the problems teachers need to be concerned about not about becoming competent, not what they're there for. If we want to talk about training security guards or, or placing uh, guards at doors or making schools harder targets, maybe there's some practical, pragmatic steps we can take in that realm. Um, maybe school resource, armed school resources officers are a good idea. I personally don't think that they are, but like, let's have the conversation. That's a conversation I'm willing to have that I think maybe could lead somewhere productive. Army teachers just isn't. Right. No, I, I 100% agree there, and uh, you know it's it's almost comical that this comes up in juxtaposition with uh, you know teacher debates and strikes, and you know paying teachers to live in poverty essentially right. in places like Kentucky, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Arizona. Uh, that isn't lost yeah. on people uh, also in New York, um, mm -hmm. where there is great educational disparity between wealthy districts and poor districts, you know, between uh, racially diverse districts and, and those that aren't. So, um, you know, my, my dad was a school resource officer. He was a, a state police officer just retiring this year. Um, and um, I think he enjoyed the experience, but one of the things that people don't realize is that the school districts are footing the bill now for school resource officers, right? There is no... Um, or such as it exists, isn't really well-funded, uh, state uh, budget item for school resource officers. And they are not inexpensive because it is a huge risk for police officers to take uh, going into that environment, just as it would be a teacher going into that environment. So um, I think we need to focus our educators on educating, uh, our police on policing, and, and doing the hard work that comes from keeping our communities secure. But uh, I think, Ashley, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that we have somebody like you out there, you know, uh, writing on this issue. 
Yeah, I mean, teachers today are not just teachers. You know, they're social workers, they're teachers, they're, uh, in a lot of cases, they're parents, and now we're going to ask them to be police officers on top of that. And I think that's just, it's a it's a bridge too far. And, I, you know, I know uh, after my Times piece came out, a lot of the teachers that I worked with in San Jose reached out and said, you know, if it comes to this, I'm, I'm leaving education. And this is not a time in in our culture that we we can afford to have good teachers walking away. Oh, um, yeah. You know, so it's it, it's pervasive, it's difficult, it's complex, but I don't think arming teachers is the productive area to, to be um, trying to legislate in, in addressing this problem. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So um, that's a good segue to talking about you know, different kinds of service and, and why we serve and what's important to us about how we serve. Um, and last week we talked, or last episode we talked about J.J., did tie buckle and uh, we were asked which of the tenets of JJ did tie buckle we thought were most important so um, we're going to go around we're each going to pick a different one I've never seen enthusiasm like passion and energy are two of the most important things you can bring to whatever you're doing um, be it being a leader in the military being a teacher being a lawyer like whatever you're doing passion and energy number one for me so I'm going with enthusiasm. Roger, how about you? Uh, this is a tough one, and I'm going to take the easy way out by going with literally the first uh, letter in the uh, in the acronym. But uh, I'm big on justice. I think that uh, justice is is essentially the foundation of trust, uh, right? If you're not a just leader, if you're not a just person, it's going to be tough for people to trust you. And as we see in the military today, it's very easy to take advantage of uh, situations where our leaders are being unjust. Um, and we, I think we need to hold folks accountable, and it's incumbent upon us to be, to be the bedrock of, of justice, I think, in the service. Uh, a focus on that, I think, uh, is super important. But I took the easy way out. Sorry. Um, that's probably one of these letters in the acronym that I'm <laughs> not doing very well at. But what do you think, Andrea? Well, I'm glad Ashley didn't take integrity because I was going to take integrity. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, if you don't have your integrity, you have nothing. And um, often when you find when you when we find it, it's interesting that the story came out this week by Phil Cly. Um, talking about Eric Greitens and, and the story that he can tell us and, and the fact that of the hundreds, um, you know, over you know, thousands of SEALs who've ever served, it's the handful of guys that don't have any integrity that somehow <laughs> use that lack of, lack of integrity to get famous. And um, it's not just about the SEALs. It's about um, this, just this complete lack of integrity and lack of accountability. Um, and when you knowing about that and then starting to question, well, what else did that person do? Who else should I be questioning? And it, and it can really put you in this, this spiral of, of losing trust in your institutions and your units. Um, and, um, you know, it really comes back to some of these, you know, we're, we're taught, very early on, you don't lie, cheat, or steal. Um, one of the first pieces of advice that I got was don't suck. That was that was 
Intel school advice. Really, really great. I don't think it's changed. Really, much. really great, eloquent advice. Helpful. I think yeah. that's probably what Robert Wilkie got too. We should ask him. Yeah. That that's something that I that I've often thought about in, in, in decision making and in trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. Often, sometimes, um, when faced with a situation that has two wrong answers, is well, what what is going to what is going to compromise my integrity and what is going to hold it intact? So, can I can I ask a philosophical question? Is this a philosophical yeah. podcast right now? I'm going to ask a philosophical question. Do we need JJ did tie, bu- tie buckle or whatever? Do we need this acronym? Is it should if you need an acronym to be a good person? Are you the kind of person that we want in military service, or is it actually a, a good tool because it reminds us of you know uh, to, to take stock and reflect on our own life and, and leadership styles? So I think it's a good tool at a session training, which is where you're taught it. Um, I think it, it, it's a very good tool at those points. I mean, I think, I mean, it's the sort of thing I think, I think about this a lot. I kind of, I and, and it's almost funny. I used to cheat on like workouts before I joined the military. <laughs> like, oh, you're supposed to do 25 push-ups. I'll do 20. It's going to be fine. I don't do that anymore. That was something that, in military training, because that was an integrity issue. And um, you start to check yourself in ways, and you do it consciously early on, but you start to do it much more unconsciously. Um, So I think it does have tremendous value, especially when you're um, introducing people to military values for the first time. Now, I also think there's a lot that's missing. I mean, grit is not part of it. Perseverance is not part of it. Um, kindness, which I think is somewhat different from justice. Yeah. Kindness is not part of it. Um, you know, I suppose we could say humor is part of enthusiasm, but um, but I think it's a good baseline in the context in which you learn it, and then, of course, quickly forget it. What does what Ashley think here? We're giving the distinctly nautical, uh, uh, you know, flavor to this. What's uh, what's the Beast Barracks, uh, you know? So uh, yeah, we have leadership, uh, LDR, SHIP. Um, oh god, very similar concept, and and I do I do agree with Andrea that I think it's a, a helpful sessions tool in terms of culture setting. Um, but I do think, you know, you hear, you go to like an E5 promotion board and it's going to be one of the questions, you know, what are the, what does leadership stand for? And it's just rote mes- memorization at that point. I don't necessarily think that you're really embracing those values at that point. You just, you know it because you, you have to check the box and say, you know what it stands for. Um, but I think it's a tool for leaders in terms of what you should be, what could, should be your guideposts. Um, I think it, it could be helpful. Um, I think I also agree with Andrea on the, point of kindness but i would maybe call it empathy and i think that's mm. kind of what's missing from all of these yes yeah um especially for leaders right like i think kindness is one of those things that can be kind of characterized as as weak or as maybe not um 
reflective of the values we want to build in warriors. And I fundamentally disagree with that. But I think if you call it empathy, um, you can get into, you know, leaders relating to their subordinates and, you know, soldiers relating to their peers and, um, you know, deployed. I think we're working in areas where populations are centers of gravity and you need to be able to empathize with, with the folks that you're interfacing with, be they Iraqis or Afghans or Koreans or wh whoever we're with. Um, so I think empathy is something we miss in all of these. So um, a couple of points to wrap up the pod today. So first of all, most importantly, summer is about to be upon us, yes. which means it is ice cream eating season. And someone, some lucky journalist up in Syracuse got you taste all 20-something of Stewart's ice cream flavors, and I have never been more jealous of someone else's work. Um, <laughs> but I think what we should do um, on this pod at some point this summer is we can taste Stewart's, we can have burned dairy, and we can also, I'm going to throw in another local favorite, some mascot ice cream. Mm. Well, you know, burned dairy tweeted at us um, and said, anytime we're ready to, uh, to rock, they will roll. So... Yeah, I'm ready to go, uh, just as long as they have uh, my favorite burned dairy flavor, which, of course, is Double Trouble, uh, chocolate ice cream with uh, caramel sea salt swirl. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go, burn a dairy. Just pick the pace, pick the time. I'll be there eating uh, some ice cream. You guys can invite me back for that one. I, I'll, I'll come back for that. I'm burned dairy kid through and through. So. Heck All yes. right. I, I'm going to crush some Stewart's fireworks, which is... Vanilla ice cream with red, white, and blue pop rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a pop rock since I was seven years old. Yeah, well, it's a throwback to the summer of 1997. Holy smokes. Pretty awesome. Not that long ago. Um, so, so we've also got... Um, We've also got Memorial Day coming up, so that means there are going to be lots of events. So first of all, we have to give you a safety brief. Don't do dumb things. Don't That's do it. Safety. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do dumb things. Don't you do it. But also, um, lots of events going on. Uh, there's going to be, in uh, my neck of the woods, military and veterans appreciation barbecue on Saturday the 26th from... 12 to 2 p.m. at the Chandler Young VFW post um, in uh, Nassau, New York. Um, and there are actually going to be some special guest speakers. Um, our congressman, John Faso and Assemblyman Jake Ashby are going to be there. Um, but uh, that is the um, no vets specific Memorial Day event going on happening in my neck of the woods. So, um, you're able to check it out, especially would love to see some um, younger vets showing up. I know you're there in the district. Um, so please, uh, please come on out. And uh, what are you guys doing for Memorial Day? I'll be getting ready to start work. I'm not doing anything. I'll just be uh, hanging out in D.C., oh my cleaning goodness. my apartment and doing laundry. Nothing, nothing exciting here. Right. The Baldwinsville Memorial Day Parade is always a big annual event, so highly recommend. Nice. Uh, similarly, out in, out in uh, Fairhaven, up where I'm from, on Lake Ontario. Uh, I will be coming back from Vermont. I'm running the marathon on Sunday up in Burlington. Uh, and then I will be back to uh, uh, 
hold down the fort with the daughter while the wife uh, enjoys her uh, Monday, probably. So. Um, and uh, Roger, what uh, what number marathon is this for you? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, then I'm not really good at public math. Number 31, I think. Yeah, 31. So uh, those of you that don't know, I'm doing a marathon in all 50 states uh, to raise money for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. Uh, my mom has MS. A bunch of people I know have MS. So uh, I'm doing a marathon in all 50 states, um, which is a great way to see the country, but probably not the best for my knees. So uh, <laughs> all you knee docs out there, chill. All right, I got this. <laughs> it's uh, It's great to have Ashley here. I think, Ashley, we're going to have you on many, many more times. Uh, before this episode, um, we've already dubbed you uh, our Alec Baldwin, or I guess this is more appropriate, Tina Fey. Uh, I'll, I'll take that. So you're always welcome here. I'm looking forward, honestly, Andrea, I don't know if you remember we discussed this uh, next time, um, to introduce a new segment of the podcast, which is where we get people drunk and have them try to say names of places in upstate New York. I'm thinking Skinny Atlas, Schenectady. Canadagua. Canadagua, that's a great one. Oh, yeah, Oswego. Oswego, that's not that. Delgaga. Yeah, um, so that's, that's coming, uh, coming soon to a podcast in this space. So I'm having a really exciting Memorial Day weekend. I'm having an exciting week, folks. So um, you, you just graduated from an institution of higher learning, did you not? Yes. So I am a master Whew. of in law and diplomacy. I received my yeah, I received my degree on Saturday. I'm proud to say that the Fletcher School cheered louder than every other division of Tufts, including 1,200 undergrads. We were so loud, they made a meme about us. Um, and uh, not 48 hours later, my, my new job, and uh, let the cat out of the bag, that I am going to be the CEO of Service to School. Nice. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, the organization provides free application support to transitioning service members and veterans applying to college and university and uh, incredible mission. Um, I benefited from uh, their work myself when I was applying to graduate school. So looking forward to officially starting June 11th um, because between now and then Saturday I get on a plane and go to Belgium because I'm going to be in the Navy, um, then this week of June for my uh, Wait, annual training. Are so, we invading uh, Belgium? <laughs> make no, sure NATO you, committee. Make sure you bring some practice. chocolate back for me. You know, just you know, secure the chocolate factory for. It's not a chocolate. You know what? Just bring me chocolate. Well, I'm, back. Going, I'm going to Greece the following week, so I can't promise it won't melt. Mm, okay. Well, then but, some uh, souvlaki uh, would be nice. Yeah, nice, nice work if you can get it. But uh, maybe in maybe in July, I'll take a nap sometime. Yeah. <laughs> I feel you. My next couple of weeks are not nearly as busy as you. But, um, I think that about does it for uh, for two vets upstate. What do you think, guys? I think so. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And uh, Ashley, thank you so much. We're looking Thanks, forward guys. to having you join us again. Perfect. All right. Happy Memorial Day, and uh, until next time, this is Two Vets Upstate. Have a good night.